The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. So um, we're about to launch in in earnest into um, the letters of John the Apostle. Now, when we got together on Easter Sunday, we established um, that uh, with the majority of commentators, we believe that John the beloved disciple is the writer of 1 John. So the John of the Gospels is the John who penned the letter of 1 John. We also know that this letter was probably written towards the end of the first century. So by that time, the persecution in Rome had kind of driven the church further and further uh, as far as Asia Minor, and as best as we can determine, John was probably speaking to a group of churches around the city of Ephesus towards 90 AD, kind of in that neighborhood. And uh, the reason why that's important is because we know that at this particular time, all of the 11 apostles had uh, been martyred. And Paul, too, had been martyred. So there are probably other believers in and around the Christian community who had heard and see Jesus teach. But John was the last apostle. Okay? He was the last of the 12 that was still living at the time that 1 John is writing. So think about this. A number of years now, 50 years plus, have passed since Jesus ascended to be at the right hand of the Father. And the church has spread out from Jerusalem to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth, even if Jesus said it would, as the Holy Spirit impelled it forward. But think about this for a second. At that time, many of the New Testament documents were in existence, but they not, had not been assembled like this in a textbook with the covers and combined with the Old Testament, all right? So the scriptures that were combined already would have been the Old Testament, plus there were gospels and letters that were circulating at the same time. So think about this. As long as first-hand witnesses could pass the apostolic message, and when I talk about the apostolic message or the apostolic witness, I'm talking about the witness of the 11 disciples. As they passed on the teaching of Jesus, they received it from him personally, they passed it on to the church. So when I'm talking about the apostolic witness, I'm talking about um, that first-hand teaching, that first-hand testimony to the gospel. So think about this now. So John is a long way from Jerusalem when he writes this letter. People don't have the Bible in hand quite the way we have it in today. And of course, we're further and further away from the time that Jesus actually walked with his disciples. And so as you can imagine, um, the influence of culture, the influence of uh, people who feel they have a special word from the Spirit, um, there was a lot of other traffic going on in terms of worldviews and ideas going on at the time. And in particular, this had impacted the church of which Paul was, a, uh, I'm sorry, of which John was the pastor in this way. There were a group of people who had initially responded to the gospel and put their faith in Jesus, but they had actually departed from a belief that Jesus was God come in the flesh. So this particular group of people and influential people in the group basically said, because of Gnostic and other influences, that really, you know, we really don't believe that, that uh, Jesus was God in the flesh. God's spirit probably just visited him for a time in between um, uh, his baptism and before his crucifixion, you know, 
Um, the God part of Jesus left. So really, you know, when Jesus hung on the cross, it wasn't God there. It was just another human being. So that was one of the, the heresies that was being propagated at the time. But the other thing that they were talking about is the fact that to be spiritual was not to repent and put your faith in Jesus. To be spiritual was to have special knowledge. And this special knowledge did not come from revelation from God's word or from the apostolic witness. This special knowledge was something that was generated from within. And the notion was, well, if we have the Holy Spirit, then we have a special knowledge. And the way it ended up being interpreted, if we understand the evidence from John's letters, is that these people basically said, you know, we only fellowship with people who have the special knowledge. If you don't have the special knowledge, you're really not spiritual, you're really not one of us. And obviously this group of cessationists, they probably didn't set out on the road of heresy, it just sort of evolved along the way. Um, they carried enough weight because they were mothers, dads, cousins, uncles of the people that were in the community that it caused many people in the church in and around Ephesus to wonder, well, hold it, did we get this straight the first time? Did we really get the gospel? Do we really understand it? Could these people be right? Could there be something in this? And so John writes to stabilize the first century church and to make sure that they do not depart from the apostolic witness, that they do not depart from the gospel. And so as we read the letters of John, they don't follow a nice sequence like Paul. It's like, um, as I said last time, it's like variations on a theme. It's like a symphony. Uh, John uh, revolves around his major themes, and then he comes back and he uh, illustrates and expands them, and then he comes back and he expands them one more time. And so as we kind of follow through his letters, there's all kinds of, of gold to be found here, but it's found in sort of a non-traditional way. And so I'm hoping that you will come to become familiar with the letters of John and that you'll come to appreciate and, and be endeared to the letters of John because um, there's an awful lot there to help us in a pluralistic day like our day when people are saying, well, really, is there only one way to truth? Surely there's more than one way. And we sometimes have people, even among our community, that are starting to wonder, well, boy, there sure is a lot of people in Canada who seem to be convinced that there are other ways you know, to pursue spirituality. How do we know that the gospel is the way? So in every generation, there is a need to kind of affirm uh, the very center, the very basics of what we believe. And Paul kind of liked to say, say it this way. I know there's all kinds of lots of ideas and wonderful things out there, but I've decided I'm just doing one thing. I'm going to preach Christ, and I'm going to preach Christ crucified, and that basically is my message. So whatever I talk about, it's going to be revolved around that truth, passed down from Jesus, committed unto Paul, and he is passing it on to others. So let's open in prayer, and then we will dive in to 1 John. Our God and Father, we thank you for your goodness to us today. We thank you for the incredible gift of the scriptures that have guided your people in every generation and guides us today. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to recognize that we all share this common life that comes from heaven, this eternal life that is found in Jesus Christ. And in spite of all the opinions and all of the static that we get from our culture, Lord, help us to stay true to the apostolic witness as we hear it communicated to us in the New Testament.
And Lord, help us to understand that our faith rests on a firm foundation and that eternal life is really ours for now and eternity. And Jesus Christ really is the full satisfaction for God's justice and that we have been forgiven and set free from our sins to have a relationship with you forever. And so, Lord, I just pray that in a day when many times we are ridiculed and our faith is tested, that, Lord, you would help us to find comfort in uh, the writings of somebody like John who heard uh, the gospel from Jesus personally and has now shared it with us and written it down for our edification right now in 2016. So be with us as we kind of move through this letter. And by your spirit, just help pennies to drop for each one of us as we kind of go through these letters and find our faith strengthened and affirmed. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Frederick Beekner, Presbyterian pastor, uh, when he's talking about John, the beloved disciple, says this about him. Jesus, for John the Apostle, is the Jesus he knew in his own heart. The one that he believed everyone else could know too, if only they kept their hearts open. He is Jesus as the word that breaks the heart and sets the feet to dancing and stirs the blood, stirs tigers in the blood. He is the Jesus that John loved, not just because he had healed the sick and fed the hungry, but because he'd saved the world. When we get into these first four verses of the first letter of John, sometimes in English, we miss what is very present in the Greek. And that is that these first four verses are absolutely packed with emotion. Uh, John is not sort of somehow emotionally detached from what he's about to say. He is about to make a persuasive and heartfelt argument. And even the way he writes these letters using the Greek language, the way he writes these first four verses, it's, it's an unusual construction, but it communicates deep emotion, deep passion, an absolute heartfelt desire to ground the church in the truth that is Jesus Christ and was passed on to the disciples. And so when we read it, sometimes we can sort of feel a little bit emotionally detached, but I want you to know that John was not emotionally detached. This is a very powerful beginning to this particular letter. And so I want you to kind of, as we read it together, uh, you've got it on your handout, circle words that jump out at you, underline phrases that kind of strike you this morning kind of use this document to sort of, you know, chew on the word just a little bit, even as we kind of get into it at the very, very beginning. And I'll try to do this every single week that we meet, is include the text we're looking at, because I really think there's tremendous value in uh, just getting your pencil out. You don't want to write in your Bible. Well, write on my notes and, um, and, and just begin to see what's going on here, okay? So let's dive in. Here's John writing. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim, and underline this we proclaim, because this is the guiding verb of the entire section. Concerning the word of life, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and we have seen it and testify to it 
And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us, and that our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our collective joy complete. Think about this passage for a few moments. There is so much that John has packed in here. There's a couple of words that I just sort of want to jump on as we get started. Uh, before we kind of get into kind of sorting out what's going on in these first four verses. One of them is the very opening passage was um, from the beginning. Now, if you're a reader of Bible, what does this opening to John's letter immediately remind you of? From the beginning. Okay, remind you of Genesis 1-1, and what else? John 1-1, yeah. Um, that echo, I don't think, is accidental, especially because the similarities between the Gospel of John and John's first letter are so similar. Um, I think John was trying to symbolize something with this. And so the question is, well, what is the beginning? And uh, there's a couple of different ways that you can process that. Some people have said, well, maybe it means um, God's intent before creation, before man came on board, this plan that he had before the beginning of time, uh, maybe beginning refers to that. I think that's a little bit remote, though there might be some shades on that, because sometimes the gospel writers use a phrase that has uh, multiple echoes. I think more likely what John is trying to get at here is he's referring to the beginning of his walk with Christ with Jesus' earthly ministry in view, okay? From the beginning, when Jesus walked among us and when we came to faith. But the apostolic witness also has echoes, but I think probably this is what John is referring to. And so basically, in view of all of the different ideas that was going on, he said, folks, I was there right at the beginning when Jesus spoke. I heard him. I saw him. I touched him. Personal experience. I knew the living Christ. And this is what he said in the beginning, and that is what I'm going to be saying in this letter. Okay? Um, the, the next question scholars sort of, sort of try to investigate in this passage is, who does he mean by we? You know, is this the royal we? Uh, who does this we refer to? And um, there's a lot of different points of view but I think probably as John is speaking here, he is speaking as uh, the representative of the apostolic witness over the years. So he is including the witness of all of those people who have come to faith in Christ, both the original 11, but also people who have come to faith since, and probably people who are people of faith in his day. So he's talking about people who have believed in Jesus Christ and have stayed true for him for all of these decades following the ascension. And so John kind of sees himself as the representative of all of those who have known Jesus Christ and have believed in him for salvation and who are carrying forth the gospel. And then the other word that's kind of a little challenged uh, or a little bit problematic is the word Christos. We know that the word Christos means what? Literally. It means Christ, but in the Hebrew, the anointed one or the Messiah, okay? 
So usually in the Old Testament, when the anointed one is referred to, it is the Jewish Messiah that has in mind. I think here, John takes this one step further with his focus on Jesus' divine nature. That included the Jewish expectation, but probably went beyond that. Jesus has the Messiah, uh, not just for the Jews, but the person who had come to save all people everywhere. So John's message really is twofold. On the one hand, he is trying to state, and this is where you can um, fill in some of the blanks, he is trying to talk about what has always been true. Okay? He is stating what has always been true about the gospel. Now, it's interesting that in every day and age, you know, there are people who feel that God needs a little bit of a hand, right? The gospel needs to be spruced up a little bit for any gen every generation. Um, you know, it needs to ring true on, in the, uh, in the uh, ears of a popular generation, whatever generation that might be. And so people like to take a few things away and add a few things and sort of just give the gospel a hand, you know, so that it has a little more influence in its culture. And certainly this is what the people who had uh, split away from the church, this is what they were sort of propagating. This was kind of what they were saying. So, folks, this goes back a long way. We're not even 100 years past Jesus rising to be with the Father, and already people are thinking God needs a little help in massaging the gospel so it meets the demands of a popular audience. But John is trying to swim against the tide. He is saying, no, it is the apostolic witness has been passed down. I want to remind you of what's always been true about what God has done in Christ and how salvation and repentance in Jesus Christ is the foundation for belief. And that because Jesus was God come in the flesh, and he has gone before us as the fruits. Our eternal life is secure, both now and forever. And so basically, he is referring to the Orthodox faith, as Orthodox as it was at that time, trying to make sure that people don't forget what Jesus Christ has done and why that is important. So there are competing voices in every generation. And John, in this particular case, is the last of the people who walked with Jesus, is trying to sound as loudly as he can uh, the gospel has he received it from Jesus because he wants to make sure that the people don't forget that. Uh, somebody once told me that um, when they are trying to coach people to recognize counterfeit money from real money, they don't spend a lot of time giving them counterfeit bills. What they do is they get them to handle as much as possible the real thing. Because when you are familiar with the real thing, you readily identify anything that is a counterfeit. And there's a sense in which that's what John the Apostle is trying to do here in the first letter of John. He's not so much writing a polemic. He's not so much writing against or reacting against these brothers and sisters that have parted and left the fellowship. What he's trying to do is he's trying to hold up the gospel in all of its glory and all of its beauty and all of its implications for the Christian community. And so he doesn't waste a lot of time hanging about the counterfeit, though he does allude to it. He wants to show the real article and make sure that everybody is clear on what that is. So he's not stating anything new, in a sense. He is stating what has always been true about the gospel. And secondly, his witness is based not on speculation, like those people who have left the church. They have kind of 
departed from the apostolic uh, um, uh, truth, and so as a result, they are free to speculate and innovate and so on and so forth. His witness, as we read in this passage, is based on the immediate evidence of his senses. He was there. He heard Jesus speak. He has seen the miracles. He has heard the gospel preached. He has seen people come to faith. He knew the 11. He knew Paul. He has this in his hip pocket. He has this firsthand experience of knowing Jesus and walking with his people. And so what he is going to do as the letter unfolds, and I will draw your attention to this when we come to it, is he going, he's, he's going to give three, at least three tests of how you can know that your faith is real. Three tests that will help you to understand that you are walking in the faith. And he's using those tests so that the early church can kind of see that over and against all of the wild and wonderful teaching of the false teachers who have left the community, he wants them to know that they are on solid ground. The whole letter of 1 John is written by way of assurance to lift up the true gospel and to help people know that by trusting in that gospel, you have trusted in the one thing that is real and true for time and eternity. And so his aim is redemptive, not reactionary. Now, there is um, a number of things that come up in this letter, and we will touch on them as we go along. But I kind of want to get into this particular verse itself and try to help you begin to understand everything that John has packed into here. So number one on your outline, what is John's authority? Because there's a big authority issue going on here right now, right? Who do you believe? Do you believe John, or do you believe the new people with their specialized knowledge who are now promoting themselves as the spiritual ones? And not only promoting themselves personally, but going church to church, trying to get other people to join this new innovative Christian fold, if they even called it that. And so what is John's authority? Well, he wants you to know right off the top. His authority rests on the fact that he was an eyewitness, and that's what goes in the blank. John claims a source of knowledge unmatched by those who didn't have access to or have chosen to ignore the apostolic witness. And the issue of what is true is really at the heart of, of the testimony. So John stands in this chain of witnesses to what Jesus taught, and so basically he is saying, not with any sense of arrogance, not with any sense of trying to trump anybody else, but just stating the facts. I was an eyewitness. I was there. And usually in any court of law, if you want to decide what is true, you always take the witness of somebody who was there over somebody who talked to someone who talked to someone who talked to someone who was there, okay? The first-hand eyewitness carries a certain amount of weight. And so John says, we actually saw this. I, I, I've always, when I've ever come to this passage, you know, I've always thought about this. Uh, and I'm just throwing this in for free. John knew the color of Jesus' eyes. He knew the length of his hair. He knew exactly how tall he was. He knows his build. He has touched his shoulder. He has grasped his hands. He knows him. He doesn't just know him in his heart the way we do, and though he, I, I think he very much did. He knew him in the flesh. That's what John is trying to emphasize here. Uh, we're not just speculating. This isn't wild fancy here I'm talking about. We were there. 
We heard, we saw, we touched. So one of the things he does here in verse 1 is he says, my authority is the authority of an eyewitness. Not someone who's had the story third hand, but from somebody who was there. That's where he starts. And he has a conviction. John is a witness to the incarnate Christ. He absolutely wants to underline the idea of the incarnation, especially because the people who had broken away said it's really not that important whether, you know, God became flesh in the person of Jesus. That's really not that important. You know, this life, this matter, this is all bad anyway, and the sooner it goes, the better off it is. You know, you want to be spiritual, the spiritual thing. That's what's going to last forever. And yet John knows that if you, if you sell the farm on God become flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, you cut out the ground from redemption. You cut out the ground from salvation. Jesus is no longer the propitiation for our sin. He's no longer yours and my substitute. He was just another guy that was in the wrong place at the wrong time with the Romans. John understands this. And so he wants to make sure, friends, don't forget, we are talking about this God who has given eternal life he is made available to us in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, who has God become flesh and walked among us. Don't let that go. That is true in his day, and it's also true in our day, because there are all kinds of people trying to challenge the fact of whether or not Jesus was the God-man, whether he really was God come in the flesh. Lots of speculation. But John, in this particular letter, says, this is the apostolic witness. It has never changed. Jesus came in the flesh, and because he came in the flesh, salvation is assured, and eternal life is the inheritance of everyone who accepts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and walks in his footsteps. So John knows the truth about Jesus, and he's a reliable source of who Jesus was and what he taught. Jesus existed eternally, but he's entered into our world to rescue us and to give them eternal life. And so John has known Jesus, he followed Jesus, he talks about Jesus. He testifies to the word of life that was embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. So he wants to make sure that the church is absolutely grounded in that essential truth, that what we celebrate at Christmas, God with us, actually happened, is actually true, and it's really important as a basis for faith even today. So his authority is that he was an eyewitness, and his conviction is that Jesus Christ was God come in the flesh. His message, and of course, again, I said this word is kind of at the center. In the original Greek, these four verses are not four sentences, they're one. And, um, and sometimes in Greek, sentences run together kind of like that. But at the heart of this four-verse stanza is this term, we proclaim what we have seen and heard. Okay? This is our, quote, personal testimony, my personal testimony. And he's trying to say here that this eternal life which we've received, this isn't a phantom, this is real, this is substantial. The gospel consists not only of historical facts about Jesus, but the divine interpretation of the meaning of his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus is the living word, the source of eternal life for everyone who believes, both for the Greek and for the Jew, for men, for women, for people everywhere. Jesus is the source of life. And so basically John is saying, I want to proclaim this word of life. I want people to get to know this Jesus. I want people to understand where life is really, really found. Uh, I want him to understand why this is so critical, the cross. Uh, 
when Paul writes, he says, I promise not to preach anything but Christ and Christ crucified. This is John's way, in a sense, of saying the very same thing. And so his message is, I am going to proclaim this living Christ, this God-made man who has died for our sins and has given us eternal life. This is our message. This is the message of the entire Christian community of which I am a representative. And so having kind of stated kind of the basis of faith, having kind of established his ground as, you know, I am giving you the real goods. It's from Jesus through me to you, and you're going to need to pass this on to the generations to come. So I want to make sure you're really, really fixed on what is actually true about the gospel. He makes his appeal. And his appeal in chapter 3 is, friends, remain faithful. That's what goes in the blank. Seeing as this is true, and you can count on it, stay faithful to it, day in and day out. Remain faithful to the teaching about Jesus, given by those who know what they're talking about, who have the authority to speak on spiritual truth. This is a critical to enjoy the fellowship of truly knowing God. And so John invites his readers to enter into a relationship with God, the Father, and his Son, Jesus Christ, by embracing God's redemptive purposes. Those who lived and walked with Jesus during his earthly ministry were drawn into the fellowship with him as Messiah, the Son of God. And God invites his readers into that fellowship, that ongoing fellowship of which you and I are a part 2,000 years later. That fellowship of those who recognize that eternal life that was with the Father has now appeared here on earth in the person of Jesus Christ, and we can come to know him and experience the fruit of what he's accomplished for us. So that's John's appeal. Remain faithful. Don't bail. Don't be fooled. Don't be led astray. Hold on to that which you've already learned and has already transformed your life. And as he kind of goes through his epistle, he keeps saying, see the difference the gospel has made? See the difference the gospel has made? See the difference the gospel has made? He keeps trying to circle the wagons, trying to make sure that people realize, oh yeah, okay, what we've got, it's real and substantial. I can count on it for now. I can count on it forever. So remain faithful is his appeal. But he's got an object in mind as well, and we learn about that in verse 3. He proclaims this truth so that his hearers, interesting the way he puts it, that his hearers may have fellowship with all of us who share the apostolic witness and with God the Father and with his son Jesus Christ. And so he kind of brings this all together in a very interesting way that sounds a little foreign to our post-Enlightenment ears in 2016. The Enlightenment basically said that man is an autonomous individual and that he calls his own shots for himself. And as a result, you know, um, the supremacy of the one is paramount in our uh, culture. The notion that everybody is autonomous, that they're captain of their own ship, they call their own shots, you know, we are individuals responsible to ourselves, and you see this philosophy working it out in so many different ways, it's just amazing to see it. When John is writing, he is saying, not that the individual isn't important, but he's saying actually the community is more important than the individual. The Holy Spirit was given to the Christian church, to the community, to God's people, and people who are a part of that community individually experience the fullness of what was given to God's people. 
And so John very much has this in mind, that fellowship is not optional if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. This fellowship, this koinonia, this is part and parcel of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. The two things are inseparable. You've probably remembered that old illustration about um, the fellow that talked to his pastor one day. Uh, this was back in the 18th century or 17th century. And, and basically said, you know something? I know Jesus Christ is Lord, but you know, I've got a little bit of a hang up with organized religion. And I really don't feel that I have to show up at church every day. And quite frankly, you know, I appreciate you dropping by, but don't feel that you have to be showing up on my doorstep every, every week. You know, I'm good just the way I am. And uh, as the story goes, the pastor says nothing. He walks over to the fireplace, and he pulls a red-hot coal out of the fireplace, and he places it on the hearth in the front of the uh, fireplace. And has the pastor and has the parishioner stare at this ember, it goes from red to pink to black. And then the pastor at that particular point goes over to the hearth and throws the coal back on the fire with all the other coals, and it becomes red hot again. And the parishioner, if I get the story straight, said, Pastor, I'll be in church this Sunday. And of course, what is his point? Fellowship is not an optional extra on this vehicle called faith in Jesus Christ. It is part of the standard equipment. It's a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so John's object is that these people don't get defellowshipped, that they don't lose fellowship with the things that really make for life. He wants them to stay with the Christian community that has Christ at the center, that fellowship with God that is experienced in the concert of God's people. John is really big on this, and he is going to go to town on the love commandment for this very reason, because that's at the heart of Christian community. And so um, he wants his hearers to stay in fellowship. That's what's happened. There's this group of people with this new understanding of what it means to be spiritual, and they have left the fellowship. And he is saying, whatever you do, don't go their route. Eventually, their spiritual life will burn out. You need to stay with this group that adheres to faith in Jesus Christ. That's how this life is encouraged and nurtured as we fellowship one with another. So in all of John's writings, both in his gospel but also in his letters, this issue of community is incredibly important to him. We experience the fullness of what God has for us, not just as individuals, though Jesus Christ died for each one of us, make no mistake, but we experience the fullness of that as we come together in community and worship and serve together and, uh, and do the mission together. And, and all of the, you, you, has anybody ever kind of written down all the one another commands in the scripture? Have you ever done that? Have you ever seen the list? There is about 25 or 26 one another commands. Love one another, pray for one another, bear with one another, forgive one another, help one another, encourage one another, support one another. Folks, you can't do that by yourself. You can only obey those commands in the context of uh, the community of God's people. So John says, the reason I'm writing this is I don't want you to be lost to the fellowship. Remain faithful to the gospel and stay in the fellowship of God's people. And he's got this promise, number six, on your handout. He said, if you'll do this, your joy will be complete because you'll have fellowship with Jesus in the company of those who know and follow him. And so basically he's saying, as you do this, we find the joy of what it means to be free, to follow our Lord in concert with one another. And so joy is the direction that he is going. 
because he realizes that joy is going to be an essential part of sustaining faith in the face of a hostile culture. Um, I don't know why I'm thinking of Granny Clampett right now, singing, I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Some of you have no clue what I'm talking about, but a few of you have smiled. Uh, this is John's message. When we are in fellowship with God and his son Jesus Christ and in the fellowship of God's people, we have joy, 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 joy down in our heart. Not happiness, which is situational, but joy that comes from knowing that I'm in right relationship with God and I'm right relationship with my brothers and sisters in Christ. There's an incredible joy that is found in that. Now, John doesn't say this in so many words, but there is an implied warning here in 1 John uh, 1, verses 1 to 4. Kind of lying behind all that he is saying here is the understanding that apart from standing foursquare on the apostolic witness, and apart from staying true to the fellowship of God's people, that fellowship with God and others can't be sustained over the long haul in the face of all of the contrary currents that every culture produces. There is sort of a, a hidden warning in what John says. He doesn't say it in so many words, but it's there between the lines, that if you don't follow in this path, the danger is that, you know, spiritual life will, will dry up and you will be the poorer for it. And so John very much is, is, is trying to encourage his people in the direction of the apostolic faith passed down from Jesus through his apostles and now to them. But he also is trying to help them understand that if you depart from this, there's, there's, penalty, there's, a, there's a cost to departing from this. And some of these people are already paying the price, even though they sort of fear they're the really enlightened ones, okay? And as we go through his letter, he is actually quite bold about probing this very fact and keeps saying, you know, kind of, he doesn't say it in so many words, I'm going to borrow from Paul, but evaluate yourself to make sure that you're still in the faith that you're still sustaining, the vibrancy of the spiritual life. Uh, somebody has said it this way, uh, a philosopher, not a believer, that an unexamined life is not worth living. And John is definitely, in 1 John, inviting us to kind of examine our life and make sure that, you know, our house is resting squarely on the foundation uh, that that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, a couple of application points just before we close. The authority of Scripture, that's what goes in the blank, the authority of scripture and the nature of Jesus Christ is central to Christian theology. John understood that. That is why he was so desperate to make sure that people did not lose the truth about who Jesus was and why he came. Um, for us, the New Testament is that repository of reliable and authoritative witness to the significance of Jesus and what he's done. And so the New Testament really is God's interpretation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of the significance of Jesus. And it's our primer for understanding what it is that John is trying to communicate to his audience. We now actually have the New Testament corpus to do that same type of work for us in our day and our age. And so uh, the authority of scripture is very much central uh, to this whole business of following Jesus Christ. And the second thing I wanna mention is we live in a pluralistic age, a relativistic age. Uh, a lot of people say truth is whatever is true for you but what is true for you may not be true for me. That's relativism. 
Pluralism says, well, there's all kinds of different ways to pursue spirituality, and no one way is better than the other, and we should be tolerant of all different paths and, and make room for them all. Oz Guinness says, in a day like ours, I thought this was interesting, he said, we are all apologists now. Not just the people who have a special interest in defending the faith, but he says, every believer in our culture, a culture like ours, is an apologist. Now he says, do keep in mind that God doesn't need defending as if he's helpless, because God is his own best apologist. But he's brought us on board, as Guinness says, as junior counsels for the defense. <laughs> so under his leadership as the, the big lawyer, we all have a responsibility to bring what we bring to the table and to defend the reason for the hope that is in us. But we need to know what that hope is grounded on. We need to be clear on why it is that we believe what we believe. But we are all apologists now in our day. We all need to have the ability to be able to communicate why we are holding on to our faith in Jesus Christ. And um, so John's trying to help us understand that Jesus was a real person that many people saw, heard, and touched. It was necessary for him to be born into humanity, to live a sinless life, to die a redemptive death, and to rise from the grave in final victory. The Holy Spirit lives within you, within me, to testify to the truth of this gospel message. And um, the Spirit's work today is always in agreement with the testimony of the New Testament. John is saying, and I'm just sort of you know, extending what he's saying to our day because he didn't have the New Testament in the hand, but he would agree with this, that Jesus is who the New Testament says that he is. And apart from that gospel witness, that written witness, you know, we have no true knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. And so in his day, the church had John, who was uh, uh, one of Jesus' friends, the beloved disciple, a first-hand witness. Today, in our day and age, we have John and Paul and James and Matthew and all of the rest to kind of help ground us in our day and in our age. And so, in a very passionate and heartfelt, it's, it's, it's really important you understand that even though we can read these um, four verses somewhat dispassionately, when John is writing, the fire of Christian conviction is in his soul. And he communicates that in the Greek. It doesn't translate to English quite as powerfully as it's written in the Greek. So, I mean, John is not kind of a disinterested bystander or somebody who's sort of looking at a museum piece from outside the window. He is passionately involved in making sure that his people do not depart from the only gospel that saves, the only gospel that sustains you for now and eternity. He is absolutely passionate about making sure people don't miss the message. And that's how 1 John chapter 1 starts. Let's pray.